shut your eyes and you'll burst into flames. Welcome to The Lodgers once again. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. Hello, everybody. And our guest this week is Connor Denny. Hey there. This week, we are talking about the fifth and sixth episodes to air of season one. That's Cooper's Dreams, directed by Leslie Linka Gladder and written by Mark Frost. And Realization Time, uh, directed by Caleb Deschanel and written by Harley Payton. Before we get any further, uh, a couple of brief sort of house cleaning notes. First of all, we uh, we got a we got an email the other day. We got our first piece of uh, well, it it didn't actually say anything yet. It was someone looking to figure out how to contact us. So that means people actually want to contact us, which is neat. Yay! Uh, so I guess the easiest thing to do we haven't set up a dedicated email or anything because personally, I already have like too many Gmail accounts, but. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Hollow Minds. Kate, you're at Cinement. That's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. Uh, you can reach us there. My DMs are open. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you can reach reach us that way. If you must use email, uh, you can hit me up at uh, suckerblues at gmail.com. That'll work. I think what, one email is enough. But thanks to anyone who's... We've been getting some great feedback. People seem to be enjoying the show which is a huge relief because we've got like 30 weeks left (laughs) (laughs) yes um so yeah uh i guess that's that's about all i wanted to mention uh the the show is now on stitcher as as along with itunes so if you uh, if stitcher is a little bit more convenient for you you can do that my uh, homework this week is to get us set up on google play as well as i understand that's a popular option among some of the kids I was hoping to get us on Spotify, but apparently you need to be some sort of major media partner to do that, so that's a no-go. That's all right. Anyway, that's enough uh, enough babbling from me. Uh, we got episodes to talk about. So uh, first off, Connor, since uh, you're our guest of honor this week, I wanted to ask you, what's your vantage point here? Like, how what's what are your what's your experience with Lynch and as uh, I guess Twin Peaks in general? So my experience with Lynch is a bit more uh, historical and detailed than my experience. With Twin Peaks, I've been a fan of Lynch since early college, I guess. I I will say, and one thing that I'm sure will come up throughout this conversation, is that I have historically been more of a fan of Lynch's more, I, I guess, experimental, or the, the films that he works with that are more about doubling of, of characters like Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, to an extent Eraserhead and less so of his more Americana-inspired works, like Blue Velvet, actually, and The Straight Story, uh, and Twin Peaks, largely. And so I've, I've been sort of understanding more of the impulses that he has with that side of his work through the episodes that I've seen so far. So it's been a, a productive viewing so far i think yeah. uh yeah you'll definitely connect simon and i are both very much i think in agreement with you on that that that's probably where our fascination with lynch uh, lies too a little bit right simon <laughs> yeah right. i mean i find it all interesting we should clarify for uh for the for the sake of our listeners that you know obviously kate and i have seen the entire show and your in your case kate i believe you've seen it uh 2700 times <laughs> um but uh but connor here yeah. has only seen up to the episodes that we'll be discussing today which uh, puts us in a new and exciting position. 
of holding informational power over you. <laughs> it's true. I've been using this podcast as a as a way of watching along with a sort of discussion in live time and and so I'm excited to hear what we have to say about episode seven when I listen to it on Wednesday. <laughs> this, this is week. awesome. So, um, I mean, I'm kind of interested, Simon, if we just, do we want to ask Connor maybe just what his general experience of the show has been so far as somebody who's familiar with Lynch, but, but maybe kind of new to Twin Peaks? Like, what's, what's, your been, what's your experience of the show been so far, Connor? It's interesting to me largely because of the fact that there are different directors, directors in each episode. I'm used to seeing the I'm used to seeing Lynch's movies through a lens of what is Lynch adding to this. I think that more than a lot of directors you can sort of see patterns in his work that that refract across different works whether it's the sort of Americana focused works like The Straight Story or something that's completely different like Mulholland Drive. In in this you can't get that as much because even though he's still running the show at least to my knowledge he's not impacting every shot in the same way and so it, it is sort of interesting seeing how this uh how the doubling that that he likes working with is dealt with by different directors um Caleb Deschanel is is perhaps my favorite non-lynch director on the show so far in episode seven uh cinematographer for rules don't apply which is one of the greater works of this past year. So excited to talk about that in a bit. But yeah, I mean, it's been a, a very positive experience and it's helped me to to understand more about Lynch by seeing less of Lynch in his work, I guess. That's interesting. Had you, um, were you kind of familiar with the show through sort of pop cultural kind of consciousness stuff, Connor? Like had you just heard people talk about it or not really? Not much at all. I knew what it was. I knew that it, it existed, but that's about it. Just so listeners know, like I, I've met Connor because I've taught him in the past. And as someone who is <laughs> who encountered Twin Peaks when I was uh, a teenager, I guess for the first time, I was too young to watch it when I was first on television. I've had a number of experiences now where I try to talk about it with people in kind of in their 20s. And I'm, I'm quite surprised how how little people uh, be below maybe a certain age know about the show, how it actually really isn't that familiar for people below a certain age. So it actually, it doesn't really surprise me that, that it was kind of new entirely for you, Connor. Right. And frankly, I was born after the show finished by a couple of years. So that may have been part of it as well. <laughs> oh, damn. I feel yeah. old. God, <laughs> <damn>. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. Well, yeah, so Simon, I don't know, do you want to, should we start talking about uh, individual episodes? Yeah, let's do that. Let's start with the first episode, uh, Cooper's Dreams, uh, so that would be the logical place to start. Uh, a little bit of preamble for anyone present who may not know, uh, Leslie Linka Gladder, uh, I don't know about her pre-Twin Peaks work, but she has gone on to have a very impressive TV CV. Uh, the two highlights I wanted to specifically mention were uh, Q&A for Homeland and Guy Walks Into an Advertising Agency on Mad Men, which mm -hmm. were two, yes. two of the very best episodes, not only of those series, but like of, the, of those years, respectively, of television that they aired. Those may have even been the same year. Um, yeah, those are just both really, really stunning episodes. And I assume that, you know, people, people have gone to her for, uh, for these particularly intense episodes because they're familiar with her work on things like Twin Peaks. And I guess I wanted to start off by talking about her style and her energy for this episode, which feels uh, and is very, very distinct from previous episodes. And um, 
I think that the the thing that I specifically latched onto was her focus on sort of key objects and the way like in instead of um, instead of just doing like a typical shot re- shot reverse shot to to uh, to, to tra- or or a t- or a typical transition, she'll go from a conversation to like fo- to focusing on le- on like a key object in in either in the frame we're already looking at or sort of like elsewhere in the same room to like, to like go to a new to transition to a new uh to a new thought the the key examples of of which were like the tracking the donuts which is like yeah. kind of just a really really awesome awesome concept as well as uh that very strange moment where uh Madeline orders a cherry coke which she doesn't drink and yeah. uh and that ends up being the the key image that takes us forward from there um just a a, a very different energy yeah i mean i think uh, there's a couple of things that i i would notice about her i the certainly there's the the very the, the choice that she makes out that stands out quite dramatically which is twice in the episode you get the framing of the th- first it's three characters and then the second time it's four characters the framing of their heads mm, all the in relief against yeah. each other as the four right. men come into the frame and it's it is such a kind of iconic image in one in on one sense but it also like it almost feels like it shouldn't work. Like it's so unusual compared to what the sort of aesthetic of the show is normally. And yet, I don't know. I mean, I think it does. Like, I think she she is kind of maybe one of the people who's who's smart about using the freedom that you can get away with with a Lynch show. I mean, I you know, for people who who aren't um, you know, don't do television studies or something. I mean, one of the ways of thinking about television directing is normally that you have a kind of showrunner set up an aesthetic uh, kind of template for a show in the first few episodes, and then directors come in, and the director's job is to really mimic and kind of work within the template that has been set up at first. And, you know, I mean, people more or less do that on Twin Peaks. Like, it it works more or less. Um, I do think that the Linka Gladder is smart about about both toning some things down, like she's not doing too much, but she also senses maybe that you can do sort of slightly more unusual shots, like these shots with the four men all lined up uh, right against each other, which is quite an unusual image for a kind of television show. Um, yeah, I don't know. There was, oh, I want, the, the other thing I wanted to say about her directing style is I think she has a really good sense of like how to use kind of bodies in the frame in an unusual way. And the, the scene that I'm thinking of particularly is the scene uh, early on at Renault's uh, apartment where you have Cooper being hoisted above the the other detectives as he's pulling the Flesh World magazine mm-hmm. out of something that we're never even clear what that is. I mean, is the Flesh World magazine hidden like in the light fixture or something? It's never even clear. But I, I like that sense. I mean, you get even in that scene, this sense of Cooper being hoisted physically above them as he is so clearly kind of above them in terms of his understanding of the scenario, right? I mean, he's simultaneously uh, showing how he's sort of six leaps ahead of everybody by saying, oh, well, clearly the blood on on Leo's shirt is is Renault's. It's not Laura's. And everyone else is looking around confused as sort of Cooper's being hoisted up to the ceiling. So just little like little touches like that, I think I, I, I quite liked about her style. Um, I don't know, Connor, what were you thinking? Right, it definitely felt like a more choreographed episode than a lot of them before. From characters' movements, I mean, you have people who walk into the frame right as somebody else stops talking, and then they start talking so that it doesn't miss a beat without having to make a cut. In past episodes, they would have had to Mm. cut, I mean, which obviously isn't bad, but it's just a different rhythm that I appreciated with this one. And it has a sort of, touching on something both of you have mentioned, it has a sort of... I guess Preminger or Scorsese inspired search for like the perfect shot is how I would describe it. I guess how it doesn't have to cut to get from a shot of 
two people to a shot of those two people and one other person or those two people with a different background. The camera can just pivot around while remaining focused on this on these same two people just from a different angle to get a sort of different look at what they're doing. And I know that a couple times at the beginning, I think it's at a hotel restaurant, I believe. It, uh, it does Great that. Northern. Where, yeah. Right. Where somebody will walk in to the frame in the very distant background as a conversation still going on. The camera will sort of rotate away from one person as they walk away and then let the other person come into the frame and start the second conversation. I wanted to briefly mention the uh, about Ari the the sort of profile shot the four guys as they that's right before they they uh, storm the the cabin yes yeah uh, there's there's two you get one I think at Renault's apartment earlier on and then you get the one of the four of them right before they go into right. the cabin and yeah. what I love about that is it's it's sort of like it, it's it's sort of like an epic moment of self mythology because you know they're they're the bookhouse boys they're they're on a quest to eradicate evil in Twin Peaks and. They're about to very heroically like storm this cabin uh, and confront a woman armed with a log, as it turns out, <laughs> which is uh, just a, a great moment of, of upending expectation. Yeah, I love that way of putting it. I think that's sort of what I was trying to get at with when I was saying it was iconic. I think that idea of self-mythologizing is is great. And, and it I don't know, it brings up a point that we can either talk about later or I just wanted to throw in now because I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks, but is maybe... Maybe the, this question about the role of the bookhouse boys in in the show and how it how the show is dealing with like the role of law, the role of um, of rule. I mean, this idea that the bookhouse boys are are basically like an illegal vigilante group <laughs> that that sort of get to do whatever they want, and every time and every time you know Coop runs up against a kind of a legal element that he doesn't particularly like, it, it they just sort of go to the bookhouse boys, and we can we can talk about that in the second episode because I guess that's one that really picks up. But um, I do think there's something interesting about that in relation to that maybe self mythologizing aspect of that shot, which is an interesting connection right which i think relates in a way to my personal fan theory that coop is actually a really really good person <laughs> like i mean I, I i he doesn't he doesn't exactly seem that way and in the first few episodes i thought he was going to be almost intoler intolerable to watch every week but he is just so friendly to everybody he never really says that anybody's wrong, even if he disagrees with everybody all the time. And so when he, who's maybe the most rule-abiding and rule-respecting person on the entire show, learns about this entire vigilante group, he treats them as just his buddies, as just people who are having some fun. I mean, they're they're essentially torturing someone. And Yeah, right? With, uh, with what's his name? I know, uh, what's his name? Right. The, the, the Renault brother, the other one, uh, Bernard. Bernard Renault, yeah. Right. And and he's just like, oh, this is great, guys. We're going to have so much fun I, together. Honestly, I mean, that had never really occurred to me. What I did notice, I'm going to apologize in advance for skipping between these two episodes a little bit, is uh, what I really picked up on is the fact that uh, Cooper really treats being in the FBI like he's in a holy order. And that that really comes out in these episodes, especially the opening of this, of the second episode where he's talking to Audrey about how you know, I'm in the FBI, and that means we have certain moral standards. <laughs> and like, what reality is this? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I, I actually, I wanted to mention that as well, Simon, because I think it, it plays interesting. Like, we've talked a couple of times on the podcast about the role of the FBI. And, you know, in the, the early 90s, and maybe this sort of... Uh, 
the, the sense of like an increasing skepticism towards the government and the FBI being able to kind of uh, stand in for that somehow. And I think like Lynch is definitely down with that, but he's also doing something else, which is, yeah, using this idea of the Federal Bureau of Investigation as yeah, this space of like the moral high ground or something, which is a really unusual choice for anybody who like knows anything about the history of the FBI <laughs> as an organization. Like it's not, that's not really what's happening in the FBI. And yet both Coop and kind of Gordon Cole later, who's a character later, end up, um, yeah, really embodying this idea of the FBI as a space for people who've taken a certain code of order and are treating the world a certain way. And I do think that that ends up playing interestingly against this idea of, yeah, Coop's kind of loosey-goosey relationship sometimes to the law. Like, for example, the, the other time that this occurred to me is in the sequence where you get uh, Coop throwing the rocks at the bottles uh, in one of the previous episodes. And 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 that being a kind of, like, um, investigative pointer towards people like Leo. And, I mean, to think about it now in 2017, the idea of, like, a policeman throwing a rock at a bottle and being like, oh, well, I'm going to investigate this guy because I hit a rock with a bottle <laughs> is a little, like, that's a little upsetting, right? I mean, it's this idea of sort of, like, the lack of legality there is a bit frightening. Yeah. And yet the way that the show puts so much kind of faith in Coop as someone with an interior kind of moral code, I think often lets them get around that. But it's still problematic a little bit sometimes. <laughs> do, you, do you ever think about like the Law and Order episode that would follow from Twin Peaks, like how that would go like in, in court? Yeah. Well, actually, I have some things to say about, like, the role of kind of clues and stuff. Uh, I suppose in this episode, it's actually Cooper's dream, so I guess I could bring that up now. But did anybody want to add anything else about the the first part there? I will say one thing. I think that the fact that Coop is sort of an outsider to this town gives him that advantage that the rest of them don't have. I mean, he's from the FBI. The first... For, the foremost trait, I guess, that he has compared to a lot of them is that he's from somewhere else. He's a little more worldly on the yeah. outside, a little more experienced. He hasn't been raised solely in this small town that he's never left, like surely a lot of the other characters. And so when he does throw the rocks to figure out who he's going to investigate, and when he does have a dream that that tells him ostensibly who killed Laura Palmer... People believe him, mm. or at least think he's onto something, just because of the fact that they don't really know everything that he's been. For all they know, that could very well be what people do outside of Twin Peaks, Washington. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting way of putting it. I've actually kind of never really thought about that before, that the show is maybe playing a little bit with that idea of the the um, credulousness that sort of is is automatically given to kind of like the urban experience over the rural experience that uh, Coop is someone from this kind of, yeah, it's implied sort of urban space. You actually never really know very much about where Coop really comes from, but it's implied that he is very worldly, he is from this sort of like non-rural space. And and like as someone pointed out earlier, like he, he doesn't even show anybody his badge. He's just automatically given this like level of knowledge about everything, which is, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way before for sure. To briefly go back to the FBI thing, like his his conception of what the FBI is and how FBI agents should behave, it feels very much like how the FBI probably talks about the FBI. Mm, uh, yeah. But like, I mean, really, only the FBI knows the knows their own true history. But um, yeah, there's there's an interesting uh, 
reality gap there. The other funny point about the FBI at this point, which I you notice more going back to Twin Peaks now, is uh, this is clearly these show. The show is filmed sort of before the like iconography of the FBI like took hold so much, which I think again has a lot to do with the X Files. But you notice the fact that Coop's FBI jacket is not what FBI jackets look like at all. Like they clearly just gave hmm. a costume person a blue windbreaker and were like embroider the letters FBI on that. <laughs> it actually is not what an FBI jacket looks like. You have like giant FBI letters in a kind of weird font that is not, you know, the, the more sort of Helvetica-ish font that the FBI uses. Um, anyway, I just, I think that's funny going back to it now that it's it's pre the way everybody understands the FBI to look. The show is before that. But anyway. Right. But that also kind of subconsciously supports the fact that, uh, and I'm sure this wasn't on purpose, uh, the fact that so many of these characters are sort of playing detective uh, yeah. Not just not just the bookhouse boys, but especially in the second episode, like everyone's getting in on the action. Everyone's undercover. Everyone's like assuming disguises. Everyone's like taking new names. Um, I mean, from like Audrey to Joan to, of course, Madeline. Um, it's 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 really running rampant. Like they really have a problem with amateur law enforcement. Um, yeah, I, I have some things to say about that, maybe when we get to the second episode for sure. But uh, I guess I, I wanted to add the thing about this question of like clues and the racial, the relationship to sort of investigation and evidence and stuff again uh, that you see unfolding in these episodes. Because we actually do get a lot of kind of forward plot movement and information, particularly in, I guess, the first episode here, but really over both of them, you get quite a lot, right? I mean, we get to Renault's cabin eventually, which is... Uh, part of where the evening's events unfolded when Laura died. I mean, I, you get more detail about that later, but at least some things happened uh, in this cabin. And um, I don't know, I found it interesting watching it this time. It even takes, it takes me a couple of steps to realize like why this episode was even called Cooper's Dreams. I was like, why, why is it called Cooper's Dreams? And, and you sort of realize eventually it's because you get multiple revelations about what the clues that he had from the dream meant here, right? I mean, this happens, it's the red drapes, it's the, uh, the line about there's always music in the air. Um, there's another one too that I'm going to forget, but there's at least three. Anyway, I, like I brought it up because it was interesting. I think there are so many things that they're doing in this show in relation to Coop and the kind of investigation stuff that ends up um, putting a lot of stock in a kind of knowledge and and a sort of like the clues, I guess, this, these empirical kind of facts that are not, it, it, they aren't about um, like a directive force on the investigation. Like the things that Coop learns are so rarely about, you know, telling him go investigate this or this, this so this means this person did this. Instead, it's these kind of clues that are much more uh, useful retrospectively, right? Like you get this form of almost prophetic knowledge where Coop has all of this knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily tell him what to do or it doesn't tell him like where to go or what to see. Instead, it becomes something that's revealed to have made a certain kind of sense after the fact, which ends up, yeah, almost sort of uh, picturing him as kind of like a prophet or a visionary or something, which I think is a really interesting way to, to uh, frame an investigator. I don't know. What do people think about that? I think it relates in a way to to Lynch's tendency to abstract objects into what they mean, or maybe not so much what they mean, but what they mean to a viewer or to the culture. Hmm. When you watch something like Mulholland Drive and it has a, a box with a key, you don't really know what this box and the key mean for the movie itself in that specific diegesis. But 
you do have the sort of feelings that you can associate with that mm -hmm. in terms of uh, something being hidden away. It's an obvious example. I haven't seen Mulholland Drive in recently enough to be able to speak about that. But in this case, something like the red room with the red curtains, you don't know obvious things like why the room is red or why the curtains are red or what red has to do with everything. But I think that the fact that it is red has some sort of subliminal impact on our understanding of it. Maybe yeah. maybe in terms of just pure emotional connections with, with the color red, maybe the sort of nauseous tones mm -hmm. that it takes on in comparison to the, the more naturalistic colors of the rest of the show relate to that. So, I mean, I guess I'm getting a little off base with what we were talking about, but when you see the red curtains reappear... I don't think that it's necessarily only limited to this relates to his dream, therefore he predicted that. I think it's more this is hearkening back to the same sort of emotions that we saw in an earlier episode, and now we're getting in onto the same wavelength that we were at before, just with a little more knowledge now. One of the most fascinating things to me about them sort of discovering the, quote, real Red Room is that I think... If I'm trying to think of like if I were a a, a theoretical showrunner of, of of another show or a related show, wherein dreams sort of portend the discovery of this physical space, in any show where that's normally the logic, you would have a character sort of sort of predict seeing a red room, then you would find the red room, and that would be that. But that is not how Twin Peaks works, because as you'll see, Connor, as you continue to watch, we are not <laughs> done with the red room of Cooper's dreams like that. Yeah. The, the the that red room continues to have uh, to have serious relevance, and uh, it's just another example of how um, the show respects these realities as 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 continuing to live on even after theoretically the 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 truth of things has been revealed. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I I would add too that I think for, for in relation to both of those points, it's I think that's a really great point to make, and I think people. It maybe tend to forget it sometimes when they're thinking about the way Lynch is working or the way even the other directors uh, on Twin Peaks are working. But I, yeah, there is such an intelligence here about kind of using, yeah, an awareness of like the phenomenological experience of of color, of sound, of light, of everything in the show that, yeah, it, it ends up cueing you to react a certain way. It, I think it's a good, it's a, an interesting way to put it to like, that when you get to this red room again, you're automatically put back into almost this dreamlike space. Like it throws you back into that, even if not literally, it calls up all of these sort of associative relations to it, which, um, yeah, I mean, I think we've pointed out before as well, the associational logic thing, it, it does end up working a lot in the way that Cooper and the sort of investigation stuff happens generally, which is that the show takes very seriously the idea that there's kind of a value to like you can get to the right, the quote, right places, you can get to the answers and all of those things through forms of logic that are not necessarily just deductive, empirical kind of fact-based logic that like paying attention to feelings and sensations is as useful of a way to get somewhere as the kind of deductive stuff is. So yeah, that's a good way. I like that. It's like a formal way to get there for sure. Uh, one thing I will add, I know that in past episodes, you guys have talked about Eric DeRay's performance as being the one that <laughs> either works for you or it doesn't. For me, that sort of performance that I keep going back and forth on is Bobby's. Oh, uh, okay. This guy, I mean, I know that it, that in, in the past episode you said that he was sort of the cool guy on the show. And that's true. He does go back to the sort of James Dean, 
disrespect for authority, but I think that it's it's more than just like a bad boy persona that he takes on when he speaks to others or in his actions. It's down to how he sits in a chair. Like yeah. the guy has so little respect for not just authority, but even just polite rules of of engaging in society yeah. that lead to really, really interest a, a, a very, very interesting performance in my opinion. And at first I wasn't really sure how much it worked for me because it was so out there, but I think that it really contributes to to his character, someone who will do anything. I mean, it's it's a guy who's a high schooler. He's a an athlete, and you find out that he sells cocaine, and like is willing to kill several people. At least <laughs> that's what he says. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. I know that it's not really something that we've been talking about. Just thought it, I would I would add that. You do get kind of a revelation about Bobby in these episodes, though, which is the sequence with uh, him and Jacoby, where Jacoby sort of manages to break Bobby down, and, and Bobby like expresses the fact that, you know, presumably he was selling cocaine because Laura had kind of forced him into that. I mean, whether right. you know you believe that at this point or not is open, but I mean, I think um, certainly the uh, Dane Ashbrook's performance as Bobby in that sequence, I find it quite convincing. Like the way he talks about, you know, Laura is sort of always trying to escape and saying good people, you know, we want to be good, but we all get sucked back down into this kind of hell. And like, you can kind of see like just how broken down maybe Bobby has been by this relationship with Laura, which I, which I think is, I think that's really fascinating. I mean, I think Dane Ashbrook is great in that regard for sure. Right. Which definitely relates to his performance as so extremely exaggerated and out there that it becomes very obvious that he's acting and it becomes a very constructed performance that I, I think it was episode seven. You get the explanation of why it feels so constructed and and that's because he was broken down and just had to come up with some sort of set of characteristics to make him into the person he wished he was. Yeah, I I think that's a great way of putting that absolutely. Since you've already mentioned that scene, uh, this is really it feels like this is really where the show starts to really complicate its characters' relationships with Laura. She's she's really all, like only 6 episodes and she's really more from being like the beautiful victim to being sort of like a departed villain almost mm. um like if if like an unwitting one or a or a, you know an involuntary one in other shows this is really a problem like especially on the killing they they pile on so much like retroactive misery in the life of the victim that it becomes like it, it can't help but feel like victim blaming mm. uh and but this show is doing something way more complicated yeah, Laura, like, well, I think we've, somebody mentioned this already on the podcast, but yeah, this sense that we have of, like, even as we already, even as we kind of constantly feel like we're never really given access to sort of a true understanding of Laura, like, we always just sort of see, like, a different, someone else's different uh, understanding of her from scene to scene, there is still a real sense in which she very clearly has agency. Like, even as, even as this sort of haunting figure after the fact, like, she's given a level of, like, control, almost, and, and presence in people's lives, which I think is really unusual for a television show's relationship to its, like, absent victim center, you know? There was a couple more things I wanted to throw in about episode six. So one thing that uh, I thought was fascinating, and I don't think I'd ever noticed it before, um, but here uh, at the beginning of this episode, you get something that later people start thematizing more and more, which is um, 
when you're at the Great Northern and Coop is like having his morning conversation with whoever, you get a convention happening in the background, like people meeting. And later this becomes something of a joke, like people start turning it into a silly thing. But here it's still it's still just sort of very a kind of subtle uh, like world building thing. And the convention that's happening in the background at the beginning of this is a convention of people involved in the American Indian movement. Like it's a group of uh, Native American men sitting around kind of talking about this thing. And I mean, like that kind of stuff I find really interesting. Like there, there is a way in which this show does such a good job of sort of like subtly pointing out its relationship to the part of the world that it's supposed to be set in, right? Like it's supposed to be set in the Northwest, it's supposed to be set in this space, and like acknowledging that stuff in a way that I think sets it out as unusual, especially because more and more in these particular episodes, it does become clearer and clearer just in the um, the way that these episodes are put together that the show is being filmed in Los Angeles. <laughs> like it's it's very bright outside. It's very bright. You get you get more of a sense of like the wrong kind of trees are constantly behind the actors, and you have to cut to like the uh, the external shots of the Double R Diner and blah blah blah. Oh, one other thing too. This is the first episode that we have that was written only by Mark Frost. So all of the other ones up to this point have been written by Mark Frost in conjunction with Lynch if they were writing if they were writing the episodes. So this one you get Frost by himself, and like I, I don't know. I think it's a real chance for Frost to shine. I mean, you really see like the strength of his writing. There are a couple of really amazing sequences. The sequence with uh, where the men end up at the log lady's cabin at Margaret's cabin is, I mean, there's some beautiful writing in that sequence. Like the yeah. sequence where, uh, where Margaret is bringing them into the house and she's saying, she says to Truman, uh, shut your eyes and you'll burst into flame. And and Truman gets like a perfect deadpan response. He's like, thank you, Margaret. <laughs> and they all sit down and they have tea. <laughs> and I mean, it's, so, it's, it's unusual, but like Frost clearly has such a great sense of sort of how to develop these unusual aspects of the character while still having a real respect for the characters. I mean, you, you begin to get some of a sense of Margaret even as a character here, like her having lost her husband and this relationship to the log, which again is all taken deadly seriously, right? It doesn't, like as, as funny as she is as a character, it's never us laughing at her. Like there is a real level of sympathy with her as well. So anyway, I just yeah. wanted to add that. It's, it's tricky to know, or, or rather maybe if anyone listening does know and can inform us uh, or specifically inform me, I would love to know uh, because uh, you know, on, on some shows showrunners who are particularly authoritative will, you know, punch up basically every script will, you know, well, I mean, probably at least frost uh, and or Lynch oversaw every script, but, but some people are really hands-on like people like uh, David Milch over at Deadwood more or less wrote every episode and then, you know, let, sometimes let people contribute a little bit, but then it would, would rewrite uh, lines or entire sequences. And I, I don't know how hands-on uh, Frost was, but and Lynch for that matter, but um, we may have to be careful about, even if Frost and or Lynch is not credited for a particular episode it does not mean they didn't have their their hands on on the their hands in the cookie jar so to speak but i, I don't know the to the extent to which that's true i yeah i haven't read anything specifically dealing with that i did read something that i guess kind of speaks to it which is that um i know that they they made a choice to write the episodes sequentially so rather than having rather than sort of assigning different episodes to writers early on and just letting people write based on some storyboard or something they would write a whole episode and then move on to writing the next episode uh which you know people have already sort of mentioned allowed them to kind of build on things that they had just noticed in the previous episode right so there's like an organic development there that's i think kind of unusual in 
in television shows. So one one imagines that if that is what was happening, Lynch and Frost must have at least been somewhat like nominally involved in overseeing this because if a writer is sort of just writing based on what like obviously there was an overall direction which Lynch and Frost were involved in deciding, but I do get the sense that they must have had some kind of hands-on relationship there if people were building them one after another. Since I guess we're now moving on to the next episode, I wanted to start by talking about Audrey because I feel like we have to. First of all, I just forgotten how just generally incredible Audrey is uh, as, as, <laughs> as a character. I just totally forgot about all the, all the shit she pulls in this episode. Uh, and just uh, in this sort of, sort of span of episodes that you're going to see, I don't know if anyone's ever made this comparison before or if anyone should, but I couldn't help. But when, uh, when she gets to one eye Jacks and has her sort of um, audition sequence where she ties up the cherry stem, I could not help but think of showgirls. Because it's you know around the same time, and it also has this sort of almost like vulgar. I know. I mean, in the case of Showgirls, absolutely, actually vulgar. But um, here, obviously, can't go quite as far. But this very like ostentatious, almost garish levels of like overt capital S sexiness that's just like very in your face. But at the same time, you could say this for for Nomi in. Uh, in showgirls, and you can definitely see this for Audrey that it's 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 one hundred percent a front. I, again, I don't know where I'm going with this comparison, but I could not help but think of of both since they're pop culture from around the same time. And since I love Verhoeven, and I have to shoehorn him in whenever I can. <laughs> um, I, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that that connection, but I could definitely it definitely makes sense to me for sure. Um, there's also something interesting there too, right? About the fact that like the the Twin Peaks crew are kind of trying necessarily to get around the fact that they couldn't they couldn't really be that explicit on television. So it's all sort of done through like costuming and innuendo and uh, yeah, the the cherry tying sequence, which apparently this is sort of a myth, I guess, of Twin Peaks. Apparently the writer of the episode had been at like a dinner party two days before he wrote the episode or something where a female friend of his had done this and he has sort of said like how fascinating an experience it was to be able to see this event happen write it into the Twin Peaks episode and then two weeks later hear like newspaper uh, reporters kind of freaking out about this cherry tying sequence because uh, it is kind of a really iconographic uh, like scene in the show um, and it's great I mean Sherilyn Fenn is so good as Audrey um, but yeah Connor what were, you, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so I sadly have not seen Showgirls yet, so I can't really speak to that <laughs> comparison. I know, I know. I I have seen two Verhoevens, uh, but only one of them was from the 90s, and it was Total Recall. <laughs> um, no, but I think that it does engage with this sort of... I I, I guess she transforms her sexuality, if you want to call it that, her femininity perhaps into a sort of currency yeah. that she uses earlier on to steal, I guess. I mean, if you want to extend the, the money metaphor, um, when she works her way into the job at the department store, I think that may have been an episode or two prior. And then in this case to get a job at a nightclub or a brothel. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't have too much to add on top of, what you said but more so than just about any other character in the show she uses her natural personality and I mean I don't know if you want to say talents but just her character traits as a way of gaining power through through just like little games that she plays 
I would add a couple of things to that because I think you're absolutely right, Connor, like picking up on this idea of her her using certain aspects of, of what she has as a form of currency. And I mean, I think, first of all, there's a very clear kind of reference to like the film noir femme fatale there, right? I mean, that's what Audrey ends up standing in for is almost this dangerous kind of woman. And, and that's hinted at as well when you when she sort of turns up in Cooper's bed. That's sort of another thing that's going on. But um, I don't know. I think I think there ends up being a couple of like unusual dynamics that get set up in in this episode that relate to Audrey and then other characters as well. I think one thing that I find really fascinating about the way Audrey's character gets set up is not only is she a femme fatale, but she becomes a femme fatale who is who is really given a place of kind of subjectivity in the show that is sort of unusual, right? Like femme fatales tend to be the women that endanger the men, but they're they're not always the ones telling the story. Like they're the bad ones, right? They come in to distract the men. Whereas Audrey is very much like at the center of a certain kind of story. She's given a level of like independence and a level of kind of a self-directedness that not a lot of the other characters in the show are given, particularly the women. Um, and Audrey really sort of knows what she's doing. And I think one thing that's quite fascinating is part of her connection with Cooper and part of her pairing with Cooper is the fact that that both of them are like voyeurs. Like Audrey is very clearly fascinated with sort of knowledge in general, like knowing what other characters are up to. She has like a real ability and a real fascination with sort of seeing what everyone else is doing. She's the one that's constantly spying. Um, I mean, that's a really unusual dynamic, like a femme fatale who's kind of also a voyeur. Like I, I think that's a great, mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Yeah. I just wanted, this is sort of a shallow point, but I just wanted to point out that this show uh, really predicts late capitalism because uh, Audrey's only in high school and she's already got two jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one of them is uh, effectively being a, a prostitute, although that does not, uh, <laughs> that she, she backs away from that, which is... Uh, for her, you know, all the better. The other thing I wanted to add about Audrey, though, that I think takes us into more of the episode, and, and Simon, you picked up on this, you mentioned this already earlier, which is this sort of, uh, the fact that all of the characters here start becoming their own form of investigators, right? Everybody starts trying to, like, solve the crime and and figure out things about what happened to Laura. But I don't know, I found it really interesting in these episodes, the way that Audrey's form of investigation gets set up against... Um, Donna and James's particularly. And there's some really interesting stuff there because it's like Audrey's form of investigation, which I think Connor already got at as well, is so clearly like she really, she has a level of knowledge about the way people operate. Like she really is is clued in, like she has a level of suspicion, she has a level of like cynicism almost about the way people are that really allows her to sort of get very clearly like information. Like she's able to get into this and she finds out things that other people have not succeeded in finding out at all. And then on the other hand, you have Donna and James setting up like a Scooby-Doo plot involving <laughs> creating like a, I don't know, like a video and doubles and like tricking people to like the, you know, like theirs is just this, is a, a very juvenile kind of scene um, mode of engaging with this idea of mystery and you know everything becomes like an excuse for them to uh to 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 wear costumes and like you know go out late at night and trick people and and be in dangers it's very um yeah it's very childish almost theirs uh and I don't know there's something interesting there too about the way that Audrey's ends up feeling um Audrey's very honest about her relationship to all of this stuff, right? Like, the show ends up very much painting her interest in this as simply the fact that she's fascinated. Like, she is, mm-hmm. this is for her knowledge, for her interest. She simply wants to know, which is, yeah, a very different way into the relationship with something like Laura. Whereas Donna and James, it's all done under this idea that they're they're doing it for Laura and they want to they wanna rescue Laura's memory and they want the truth to come out. And really that, that more and more, I think, as the show goes forward, almost ends up reading, like, hypocritical. Like, they're not really doing anything for Laura. 
neighborhood. It ends up feeling almost as if they're just doing it for their own like entertainment and their own kind of sense of, of titillation or something, really. Yeah, Audrey just seems to be kind of trying to expand the contours of her universe. Like she it's it's always been very limited by what daddy wanted and now she's looking to find out sort of the 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 dirty hidden truth behind everything. I think I I I, I this is the point of the show at which I wonder like was Brian De Palma watching the show and just salivating um at just like all the <laughs> at the the costuming at like the every at, you know the characters dressing up as other characters and the uh and the ways and and the the movie making and also the way the show starts to interact with invitation to love is interesting at this point something i forgot to mention about the previous episode the way that um the end of an episode of invitation to love coincides with the commercial break in the episode is uh, yeah. was, was really really cool the way that the characters their connection to 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 not just laura but like to reality starts to become tenuous in uh, in episode in episode seven, and uh, I, I couldn't help but think this week about what art gets to be called Lynchian and what doesn't. You know, we've all heard something called Lynch Lynchian and cringed because you know it happens to have dream <laughs> sequences and weird lighting. Um, yeah, I've I've seen, for instance, I've seen a lot of people call the FX series Legion Lynchian, which I don't agree with oh, at all. Uh, but I never see that uh, lodged at something like The Leftovers, even though I think that I think the way that show deals with how uh, you know, uh, something happens and everyone's perception of reality is like irrevocably altered and in a way that is is different for everyone and uh, and, and manifests uh, also the way that show deals with things that may or may not be real and blah, blah, blah. To me, that show is a lot more sort of like reliably Lynchian. Uh, but I mean, that's 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 a whole other whole other discussion. I didn't I don't mean to necessarily crack open. I think it's a good starting place to talk about one of the things that I found the most interesting about Realization Time, Episode 7. Uh, and I mentioned earlier Caleb Deschanel um, as the director. He was the DP for Rules Don't Apply. I'm not sure if either of you have gotten the chance to see that yet. But no, I haven't. You should watch it. I think it just hit Blu-ray this week. But one of the recurring shot structures in that film that it, it comes back to a lot actually is just a simple shot reverse shot between the two leads, Lily Collins and Alden Ehrenreich, where it shows them looking at each other in pretty extreme close up. And then you'll get an establishing shot again that sort of ties the whole thing together. So you get lost in the individual reactions to what's going on. And then it'll give you once again the full picture and put everything sort of in a context. And that's something that he does in this episode a couple times. When James and the other person, the girl that he's with, I forget her name. Donna? Right. When James and Donna are talking at a dinner table at one point with Madeline, I think, the camera is very, very close to them. They're having this extremely, um, I mean, as you said, Scooby-Doo <laughs> type of conversation where what they're saying is, is pretty out there. And then you get a shot just of the entire room that they're in with them just sitting at the table not talking. And it sort of grounds everything and, and tells you, like, you guys are sort of losing your touch on what's feasible, what's doable. So we're going to put you back into the mm. entire context of, of the show or of the conversation and show you that really it's just these people who are so distraught. I mean, they all have their heads down as they're talking about their their deceased friend or relative 
and they're just trying to figure out some way of making things right or figuring out what was going on. And it leads to these pretty insane plots and these pretty insane plans that may or may not come through. I'll find out on the next episode, I guess. But but it, it also reminds you that even though the show might be getting into territory that's that's very much not realistic and and very much exaggerated from what we might think the show's logic should be it reminds us that it hasn't forgotten of what the logic should actually be and that everything that we're seeing is just influenced by the fact that these people are really in a state of shock and depression still I, that's I hadn't, that's a great way of putting it. It makes me think that there's a similar kind of like setup in the first episode where um, Leland turns up at the event at the Great Northern and starts uh, dancing when the music plays, and and you get this sort of comical like farcical thing where uh, Catherine Martell has to go out and dance with him to convince everybody that, this, and they all start doing this goofy dance with their heads. But and you know and you're kind of laughing and you're caught up in this like weirdo thing, and then all of a sudden it cuts to Audrey standing in the back like hiding behind a post and she's weeping right because she's looking at Leland and seeing like how devastated he is and like what is happening and why this sort of farcical thing is what it's really covering up right which is this pain that's happening underneath that everybody is so busy not looking at and I think I that's and and for me that's a really that moment really really stands out in that first episode and I think you're right that's there's something definitely similar that Deschanel is playing with which is great um, I think my favorite moment of because there's so much role playing in this episode but I mean my favorite has to be Big Ed yeah uh which is just that is some really excellent role-playing uh what what do you do oh i work at a gas station (laughs) like he's so bad at playing i love it and then he he catches himself and he's like oh i'm an oral surgeon no i big ed in the costume is is one of my favorite things for sure yeah that's a that's a really really great comic performance which i don't think he gets enough credit for he is he is very wonderful big ed he's hard not to love him and uh him and norma they're hard not to love and root for his characters right the only other i think the the last sort of image that i would be remiss if i did not mention is the uh the blood and feathers on the donuts Uh, of course uh, which is classic fantastic and it's it's not really like it's not like it's not an image that i've seen people bring up but to me it's it's like the standout you know iconography of the episode even more so than the cherry stem which is which is like a great scene but i don't see it as connecting to any of the any any of the themes in the same way i the donut the the blood and feathers on the donuts was one of the images that struck me the first time i watched the show the most absolutely like i don't know if anybody remembers people listening now but i think the dvd sets that were available that were made available maybe 10 years ago uh would sort of take an image from each episode and the donuts and blood was one of them and i remember even just leading up to that episode being like oh my god what is happening with these donuts like i couldn't wait to get to the image of the blood on the donuts and find out what was going on um yeah no i think it's a genius that whole sequence is kind of amazing like like, yeah, it could read as so silly, right? The idea of a bird as a witness, like the bird is going to reveal something. You know, again, it plays into almost the jokey quality of a lot of the investigation here, right? Like it's a bit silly. And yet when they come in and the bird has been shot and Coop is playing the tape recording back, it's it's so chilling. Like something about this, again, this mimicking of Laura's voice, the bird mimicking Laura's voice and narrating like this this really painful, awful event that's happening. There's something so unsettling about that and so unusual. Mm. It's great. 
there's a lot of simulation of Laura happening in this episode, right? I mean, with the amazing sequence where uh, they drag Jacoby out of the house to get Jacoby to come to the uh, somewhere. He's supposed to go somewhere else, but he turns up at the gazebo and they've, they're filming uh, Maddie dressed up as Laura. I mean, I don't know. There's such interesting stuff with this, like, not just doubling of Laura, but like this tripling of Laura, you know, like um, yeah. the first time we see, we, the first time we see Laura, of course, we actually are seeing Laura, right? Like we're seeing Cheryl Lee on screen, but it's, it's, you know, three steps removed. It's her cousin in a wig dressed up as her. I mean, I, I, there's just such great things happening here, but again, the way the show is so aware of how, how much Laura's image is constantly being recuperated and taken over by other people to be used for their own ends and how we're, we're, we're always at such a remove from quote, you know, who she actually was and the way that the show is doing the way that Twin Peaks is doing it through references to things like Vertigo. Uh, you know, Matt mentioned last week, like, of course, Madeline is named for the character in Vertigo, but here you get even more than that, right? You get the idea of the dark haired woman being dressed up as the blonde haired woman who's everyone's fantasy and like being controlled by the, to, to sort of other people's ends and everything. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, that's genius. Uh, I find it fascinating that she, when she's making the phone call, she keeps the wig on. And Cheryl, Cheryl Lee's performance is so great too. I find it so striking when she's she's talking to Jacoby on the phone and doing this kind of Laura voice. And as soon as she get off, gets off the phone with Jacoby, her voice drops like three registers. Right? She sort of goes back to Maddie again, yeah. and, you know, not doing this kind of like "Hey, Doc," like talking at the top of her palate. I mean, just like little touches like that. I think I think Cheryl Lee is fantastic as both Maddie and Laura. I mean, considering she was never originally intended to be anything more than a corpse, I think I think David Lynch agrees with you. Connor, was there anything particularly else about this episode that you liked that you wanted to just mention? Yeah, I want to start with a question first, though, just because I don't have as good of a, a, a grounding of the context of the time that the show came out. What sort of impact did Blue Velvet have? that had still spilled over into 1990-91. Because the shot that I'm referencing right now is when um, when they're in someone's office, I forget his name too, and Audrey is hiding in the closet, and she's, she's looking out into the room and seeing the guy talk to the girl who had just come in, I think it's, it's and, uh, Benjamin Horn and Catherine Martell, I think, yeah, right. who she's spying on. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's a shot, if I remember right, that's almost straight out of Blue Velvet, perhaps by way of Psycho. But I can't help but think that people at the time must have connected that to Blue Velvet. So on top of the the just sort of voyeuristic impulses that, that are driving this and and the sort of connections that it would make with the viewer in terms of, of spying on someone just at a basic level, it seems like there would have to be some sort of connection that, that an audience is making to Blue Velvet that I think might be interesting to tease out, that maybe Lynch's earlier work, like seeing Kyle MacLachlan do that, how people are reminded of that. Well, I don't think people were necessarily making the explicit connection, but like as we sort of discussed before, you know, people i think people were um were drawn to the show at least in part because they wanted to see what what this guy was gonna was gonna get away with because if they even if they hadn't seen blue velvet which there was a decent chance they hadn't you know i don't think 34 million people saw blue velvet uh i don't i don't think that's possible but 34 million people did watch you know the or 36 million people saw watch the first episode of twin peaks because you know at, at least in part, they wanted to see 
um, how how far this guy was was gonna was gonna push it. And I think uh, whether or not the viewer has seen uh, Blue Velvet, you know, they watch scenes like uh, like Audrey watching the scene play out, and they wonder, I think, when the cut is gonna come. Um, and yeah. honestly, it's ni- it's nineteen ninety, and the cut doesn't take very long to show up. But, <laughs> but there's still there's there's I think there's a sense of kind of gamesmanship of maybe they're not making that explicit connection to Blue Velvet, but uh, at least not the images of Blue Velvet. But they may be connecting it to the reputation of Blue Velvet, and you know which was you know Blue Velvet was pretty uh, was pretty controversial, and um, it's that that's a very nostalgic thought now because we don't do controversial movies anymore nothing is really controversial anymore um the only film controversies we can get now is when like imdb scores get artificially deflated or something um, which is much less exciting <laughs> or, or silences especially pernicious white savior narrative that somehow has multiple articles written on yeah or uh or someone spoiled get out's rotten tomatoes score or some <laughs> good old some, uh, something like that good old armin yeah no i mean i think i think probably what you're picking up on there connor is is i think there is some sort of level of self-referentiality that uh that lynch as a whole participates in but i think sometimes it's also difficult to kind of figure out where it's self-referentiality and where it's maybe just another version of him him and the other people here as well, like engaged in a kind of postmodern general sort of constantly referencing other texts as the as the main frame of reference for Twin Peaks, right? I mean, right. here again we have the kind of Hitchcock, right. perpetual kind of reference to Hitchcock, which you already mentioned, right? Like, call it it's sort of pointing out the connection to Psycho. Uh, I mean, I think so much of that is framing this show that it's almost difficult to tell where that begins and ends. But um, but yeah, but what else did you did you want to open that up to for the episode there? It very well may be something as basic as self-referentiality or uh, or just like a playful reminiscence of something that he's made in the past. I can't help but think, though, that these images have surely entered the cultural consciousness for at least a good chunk of the people who are watching Twin Peaks. I mean, I'm not sure the number of people who saw Blue Velvet, but I think that when people see this image... It, it sort of recalls past images that they've seen, like Psycho or like Blue Velvet, and makes them lead, makes them make the connection and sort of the spot the differences in their mind. I mean, this is the first one out of those three, at least, where it's a woman who's looking through the hole. And, and I, I think that that, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm especially equipped to say what I think about that, but it does interest me the, that these connections drawn are are doubling in a way that, that Lynch has done in the past, except this time through his work, and, uh, and that you would have... It, it goes back to the sort of currency that Audrey has with her femininity and with her sexuality, then now is relating to the fact that she's a woman spying on a man speaking with a woman, which is a bit different from the typical voyeuristic inclinations that we've seen in the past. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that there's all that much that I have to add to that. Just thought it was an interesting mm-hmm. point. What I, what I find interesting is that unlike, you know, psycho and blue velvet, this is a TV show. And that means that to a certain degree, like Audrey's kind of protected, you know, like, 
the things that happen to you know Isabella Rossellini, for instance, in 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 Blue Velvet, in terms of like expo- just sheer exposure, like in a way, like that's maybe almost what helps let her sort of experiment and and uh, and sort of break the boundaries of uh, of voyeurism because there just aren't going to be those uh, those literal. Uh, those those literal consequences. Uh, but now I'm getting into some truly strange territory. Well, yeah, like I, I want to say, because again, I can't say too much about it because I don't want to spoil anything. But I, I do think there is an interesting kind of set of stuff on the horizon in relation to Audrey, which is here you're being really set up to, again, believe that she has this kind of level of knowledge about the way people operate and the way the world is, like almost a kind of cynicism and, and awareness beyond her years, even as she is clearly still very much a teenager in a lot of other ways. Um, you know, like we're supposed to sort of believe that. And yet going forward, we'll kind of realize again just how ill-equipped even someone like Audrey is to be able to really um, deal with what's actually going on here, right? Like there still is a level of kind of insulation where they're maybe just not, her and Donna and James certainly are just not really prepared for like what actually is going on there is is going to, Audrey's going to fall off that edge in a certain kind of way in mm. later episodes. But um, but anyway, no, it's all, it's her, she's fascinating for sure. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Donna and James are totally, totally together. They're totally with it. <laughs> <laughs> they totally know exactly what's happening yeah. all the time. They've got they've got they've got it figured out. We end up making fun of them a little bit, but they are still, I think, even in this I actually forget if it's maybe it's the first episode that we watched it this year, but uh, this week, but um they still end up being given like kind of a level of authority to speak about sort of the some of the thematic qualities of the show. Like you get James giving that speech to Donna in the gazebo where he's talking about his mother um, as an, who's an alcoholic and, and you get this sort of like revelation about uh, why his mother isn't around and what his sort of personal history is. And which again, by the way, I always thought was a really weird missed opportunity that they never end up developing that more later. But the, um, but anyway, so you get James talking about this and you get his speech where he says, you know, like secrets are what ends up killing people. Like secrets are what end up hurting people. And when we, I don't want to have secrets and like this theme of secrets comes back a couple of mm-hmm. times. You get Cooper talking about secrets at the beginning of this episode as well and I don't know I mean there I think there is something there there is something to that like again this this place of Donna and James is the sort of innocent core of the show they are still they do still have a level of awareness around what is going on in the show and what really is hurting people because I think that's one of the major ideas of this show right is that you know secrets it's so innocuous almost put a sounding right like it's almost childish like ooh secrets but but it really they are really like violent deadly things like they end up really hurting and killing people here so i don't know yeah yeah uh that's probably one of the better scenes that involves a lot of james marshall talking yeah it's true <laughs> we should probably be wrapping up are there any final thoughts anyone wanted to to lob into uh into the podcast sphere before we do that I guess one last point, we sort of touched on it in the last episode, but the connection to Invitation to Love, I forget which episode it was when Shelley shoots uh, Eric DeRay's character. It's uh, Cooper's Dreams, I think, here. Okay. Um, Well, in, in Realization Time, you get the Invitation to Love episode where someone shoots someone else in almost an identical framing even yeah yeah. but the way that that twin peaks as a show treats it in the prior episode is very much she was forced to do this she is shell-shocked by the fact that she had to do this literally and in invitation to love he pulls the trigger and he suddenly gets this extremely melodramatic like moan look on his face of like what have i done 
and, <laughs> and, and like cue the music coming in. I, I think that, that that connection between, I mean, Twin Peaks and Invitation to Love have several intricate relationships, as you've discussed in the past, in terms of how they deal with the soap opera register. And in this case, it's pointing out the the completely different ways that they deal with with something like violence. Twin Peaks is saying this is this is really really terrible. And even though the show might be considered uh, sort of controversial, I guess violent in some ways, it's really condemning the the use of of violence unless it's specifically necessary. And when it's necessary, it's not seen as, oh, good, you had to kill him, so that's great that you did. It's, you, you had to shoot him, now you have to deal with the fact that you shot someone, even if your, your reasons were entirely 100% justified. Whereas Invitation to Love is treating it like a sort of game, as a sort of plot point that people are going to just fall behind and, and like watching because it's, it's melodramatic, fun entertainment. I think I think that's really astute. I mean, I think the show has very complicated feelings about violence, and and uh, Simon's already hinted at this scene, and people who've seen the show will know what it is. But there is a scene later that maybe uh, articulates more clearly even the show's attitude towards violence in a really wonderful sequence. But um, no, I think you're absolutely right, Connor. I think the show is really very attentive to what violence does and having to deal with the kind of like impact of it. It's never just sort of a silly thing that you have for plot development. Um, I hadn't thought about it in relation to Invitation for Love, but it definitely works. Um, I also think there's something great going on in that sequence in invitation to love where you have yeah as you say this kind of melodramatic almost goofy reaction to somebody shooting someone else uh in maybe the same episode or maybe right before you get uh shell uh Machen amic who plays shelly shelly's reaction to having shot leo and i find that sequence heartbreaking like where imagine amic is, is crying in bobby's arms and she is utterly terrified over what will happen to her like she is sh so sure leo is going to come back and kill her and she is so like scared and frightened i mean i, I think there's there's almost a commentary there on how, um, again, like you, you would expect this to be silly and artificial, right? Like to be this sort of melodrama. And yet the point is that it, it is still so affecting. Like it isn't, you know, artifice still has a role to play in our emotional lives, right? Like it, it matters. I mean, mm -hmm. Machine Amic is so good in it. But anyway, yeah. Right. But then on the other hand, you do have Bobby saying right after that, Leo Johnson is history. Do you understand? <laughs> and it, it 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 turns this very, very. I mean, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I yeah. think that you're spot on in that. It's it's treating this as something that's almost like akin to PTSD that she's experiencing. That it's this utter guilt and wish that she didn't have to do it. And then you have yeah. Bobby come in with one of the more cartoonish lines of the entire episode of his history, do you understand? And it just <laughs> turns the register from mournful back into the sort of loopy, yeah. uh, weird, madcap environment that, that Bobby is so adept at creating and that Twin Peaks is so adept at, at infusing in every moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And meanwhile, of course, Leo is waiting outside with a rifle, literally right outside. Right. <laughs> so way to go, Bobby. You really called that one. 
<laughs> as usual. I love to all all Bobby ends up actually doing in that episode. Like he says, he says to Shelly, "I'm going to take care of Leo. You don't have to worry about Leo." And then all he ends up doing is he goes off to frame James by putting the like, drugs in James's motorcycle. He never actually does anything about Leo. He seems largely like unconcerned about uh, Leo and Shelly, which maybe speaks to his character a little bit. I, I've literally already forgotten why he hates James so much. I just assume that he hates him because he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, it, I, it's supposed to have some vague reaction like something to do with the fact that laura was dating uh james secretly but it, how believable that is for bobby's motivation is a bit dubious but anyway right because who wasn't she secretly dating exactly yeah if by that logic she well whatever i, I there's no spoilers but yeah, yes he, exactly, he, ha- he has to he has to murder like half of twin peaks now <laughs> 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 anyway, that's probably yeah. a good place for us to end up. Uh, R.I.P. Waldo, you were a good bird. Connor, are you? Uh, do you, are are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. My handle is is at review of film, which is sort of ironic given that I don't really review films. But <laughs> I, I figured that I would have the handle locked down in case someday I do. Nice. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like Connor actually writes like things about film on Twitter. You wow. should check it out. I, he's much better than Simon and I that don't really do any of those things. <laughs> yeah, no. See, if I had that handle, what I would do is I would use it to mention times that I reviewed films. Like, oh yeah, I watched <laughs> I, I I watched Titanic again today. <laughs> yeah, do you you constantly rewatching Titanic, uh, yeah. Simon? Is that yes, a, a exactly. regular thing for you? Yeah, yeah, I've been outed. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for joining us, Connor. This uh, this is great. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank y'all so much for listening. Uh, I, I I always forget to say this at the top of the show, but please rate and review us on iTunes. We would very much enjoy that. Uh, it helps with visibility. Uh, because you know we love that there are so many Twin Peaks podcasts, but. It, it does, you know, it is, it's a crowded field out there. So. It is a crowded field, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, visibility yeah, share, is good. Share us. Tell, tell your friends. Tell your friends about the lodgers. Uh, post on social media about us. That would really help. Yay. Yes. Thank you very much, everyone, and have an excellent week. Mm-hmm.